Hey Funky listeners, welcome back to Funk Radio, your favorite podcast that has us in it. <laughs> and only us. Who are um, you? I'm Kyle. And I'm Peter. Yes. Um, before we get started with our main topic for today, Kyle, yes. Um, two things that we should knock off our list. One, I think you should tell our listeners what you thought of the new Pop-Tart flavor you tried this week. Oh, God. Yeah, um, I've been tr- searching for new Pop-Tart flavors to try um, since we last discussed the, I guess, new flavors that'll be coming out between now and 2016, and I found a flavor that I'm not sure was on the list, but I bought it because whatever. Um, it was peanut butter and jelly, and it didn't taste good. It tasted like peanut butter and jelly crammed into, like, one of those wafers you get at church. So it's like peanut butter, jelly, and Jesus. What? You know, like, you know... But those don't have no taste. Exactly. Exactly. It was like peanut butter and jelly crammed into, like, a completely tasteless pastry. That's so sad. Which is weird because it had frosting. But the frosting was just peanut Uh. butter. So it was just extra peanut butter with, like, flavorless Jesus pastry. <laughs> so was it peanut butter and strawberry jelly? Because I thought it said strawberry on the picture that you showed me. Yes. Yeah, it was peanut butter and strawberry jelly, which the strawberry... The jelly of the strawberry thing basically just tasted like a strawberry Pop-Tart. Mm. And then you just cram peanut butter in there. But the peanut butter had this really weird, not super peanut buttery taste. It was kind of just mm. salty. So it's like... A salty strawberry pop tart that also tastes like Jesus. Well, it's, it's the Holy <laughs> Trinity: Father, Peanut, and Holy Jelly. <laughs> I'm sure that's a review that that they uh, will never hear anywhere else. Yeah, the Holy your pop tart is like the Holy Trinity of crap, of terrible flavors. Yeah. Well, that's one thing down. Thank you, Kyle, for exploring the flavors for us. Yeah, more reviews to come as they come out. Uh, the other thing is, oh, we'll try to let's try to keep this brief. But do you want to tell us what you thought of the movie San Andreas? Yeah. Um, so I watched a couple movies over the weekend, and one of them that I watched that I figured was worth talking about was the movie San Andreas with The Rock. <laughs> um, the best way I can describe the plot is it's just The Rock running from rocks, because like eighty <laughs> percent of the movie is just. Here's a bunch of CGI shots of buildings falling down. Here's some more buildings falling down. Here's the rock saying, oh my god, the buildings are falling down. <laughs> it's so funny because I remember there was a part towards the end where the earthquake somehow caused a tsunami that came back at the coast, which doesn't make any sense. Because usually tsunamis are caused by underwater earthquakes, and the the San Andreas Fault is not underwater. Oh, you're right. Yeah, I don't know if that could happen. So, there's a, <laughs> it's like there's an earthquake that shakes San Francisco, and then all of a sudden a, a tsunami comes at San Francisco that is somehow also caused by the earthquake, even though the fault line is east, <sighs> is east of the coast. It was just like, oh, we have to throw in a giant tidal wave here just so we can destroy the Golden Gate Bridge because it's iconic. Well, nothing you said 
um, surprise me one bit. Yeah, it's I I like The Rock, and I like that he really does not take himself seriously in most movies. But like, the range of his acting in that movie was just like, I'm serious in a dangerous situation, and I'm serious because I'm The Rock. (laughs) I'm very serious. Oh boy! Well, listeners, take that review as you will. Mm -hmm. Uh, If you want to see that movie, please do because it's awesome. Then, then do that. If you don't, then don't. Yeah. Until then, you can listen to us talk for the next 40 minutes or so. Yay. About something else. Should I, uh, I guess I should introduce the topic for today. Possibly, since you researched it more than I. Uh, That's true. Well, listeners, as you may have guessed from the title of the episode or wherever you may be finding this, um, we're going to talk a little bit today about uh, a record label called TK Records um, that was based in Miami, Florida and throughout the 70s until I believe in 81 um, it went bankrupt but throughout the 70s when it was around um, it was one of the primary powerhouses of disco music and uh, you know a lot of the pioneering people of that genre came out of this label um, you know during that time so partly because we basically never mentioned this record label, I feel like it's and some of the, the the artists that we'll be talking about. I felt that it was important to uh, to cover this because you know on the show we always are talking about Motown records. We're always talking about um, we've talked about Stacks a couple of times. Mm-hmm. Um, there's probably a couple of others. Muscle um, Shoals. Muscle Shoals. That's true. Yeah. Um, Philly International, um, but we haven't because you know I think primarily we usually stick to to soul and and funk music, but we do talk about disco, but not as much. So that's probably why we haven't talked about TK records yet. Mm-hmm. But, uh, by the end of this episode, you listeners and us will be more educated on this thing. First of all, can you tell me what TK stands for? I can, I, for some reason did not write it down. Cause I wasn't sure if you were going to ask. I asked. Um, TK is actually the, the, <laughs> thank you. TK is actually the initials of the sound engineer that built like their first um, sound studio. Nice for the founder Henry Stone. See, they should have called it Stone Records. They should have called it Rock Records, and then I was, made rock music, and then the Rock could have Rock Records. The head of it, <laughs> and he could have been so serious all the time. Exactly. This music making business is very serious. <laughs> Um, the founder of the of the label is Henry Stone. Uh, he was originally a record distributor in uh, in in the sixties and seventies, and then throughout the early seventies, he actually created several different um, record labels. Most of which either later became or were just always um, a sub label of TK. And and I want to say TK had like two dozen sub labels to it. Jeez, um, it's like Motown. But worse, pretty much, yeah. Um, but yeah, like I like I was saying earlier, um, TK little TK Records was kind of the, one of the primary breeding grounds of uh, early disco music um, in the early seventies. And some of these were actually you know earlier, several years earlier than what a lot of people consider to be the golden age of disco, which was basically seventy seven to seventy nine. I think very true. Um, I guess getting right off and starting with the some of the first stuff produced at TK Records before 
disco really took off. Um, one guy that we want to talk about who it's one of those songs where I, a lot of people know the song. They don't know the guy, uh, is the song. Why can't we live together by Timmy Thomas, which is a really cool name. Um, that was produced in 1972 and was actually the very first song distributed by TK, uh, well before the days of disco. If you listen to it, it's clearly much more soul inspired than a lot of their later hits because it's much less, you know, orchestral and produced very down to earth. And it has organ, which mm-hmm. is, it seems like disco or disco. It seems like soul always had organs in it for some reason because gospel influence, I guess. Um, yeah. But Timmy Thomas in the 60s was part of an R&B group called Philip and the Faithfuls, and he later went on to become a session musician at the Memphis-based Goldwax label. He didn't really find any success there uh, until he moved on to Glades Records in Florida, um, one of the many subsidiary labels of TK, as Peter just said. Um, The song, Why Can't We Live Together?, once released, actually quickly climbed up to become a number one R&B hit and sell over 2 million copies. So, as we said, totally one of those songs where it's like, I know that song, but no one knows mm-hmm. the dude. Maybe I don't know if that means he was a one-hit wonder, I guess. So, maybe not, I don't know. Probably. But, I mean, I, I had actually never heard of Timmy Thomas until I, doing research for this. I haven't either. Isn't Timmy, like, or isn't Tim, or can't Tim be like a shortened name for Thomas? So technically, he could be com- um, Thomas Thomas, or am I dumb? Well, I mean, it's short for Timothy, right? Oh, you're right. I'm dumb. Yep. But I mean, I guess Tommy would be short for Thomas. Yeah, yeah. Oh man, he could have been yeah. Tommy Thomas. No, he could, he's he's Timmy Tommy. Timmy Tommy. Timmy Tommy. Rub your Timmy Tommy. Well, listeners, let's listen to a quick clip of "Why Can't We Live Together" by Timmy Tommy. Why can't we live together, listeners? Because we'd run out of room in a house, in our house. No, we wouldn't. It's like two or three people. We'd make it work. (laughs) (laughs) We should start our own reality show where like all the listeners of Funk Radio live under one roof and it's just like seven people. (laughs) It's the new real world. (laughs) It's real world. People that listen to bad podcasts. Um, so yeah, as you listeners probably heard, um, very, kind of a very stripped down, um, style to that. Not very much going on. I mean, they had like the organ, he was singing, and I think there may be some kind of, uh, drummer rhythm machine going on as well. But other than that, I mean, that's pretty much all it was. Pretty much. Um, I, I included it in this list because I felt it was important to kind of just say what the very first song was, um, you know, that came out of TK Records, but also... It's funny because um, you say that you've heard this song before, Kyle. Mm-hmm. Um, I had never heard it until maybe a month ago in like a, a mix of others, like a bunch of stuff. Mm-hmm. And I made a mental note. I was like, oh, that's kind of like a soul sounding song I've never heard before. But I never bothered to look up who it was or what the song was, you know, separately from that. Mm-hmm. And um, and then when I was doing research for this, I was like, hey, that name sounds familiar. I looked it up and it was that song. So 
kind of a weird coincidence there for me. I don't, I don't know where if you've if you've know where you've heard it before. I think I've heard it on that XM station I listened to. Oh, okay. Is my best guess, but yeah, I have heard it. Interesting. Yeah, it's funny that when like you kind of are accidentally introduced to a song, and then realize that it was actually a pretty popular song. Exactly. That you never heard of. Exactly. I like to I like to think that we are pretty well rounded with our knowledge of this stuff, but you know, there's always new things to learn. For sure. Yeah. There's if a, there wasn't, then we would stop making episodes. True. Maybe just because it's of my inexperience with disco, but yeah, there's quite a few artists in here I've never heard of before. The yeah, I mean, we don't like I said, we don't really talk about disco as much, true, and we don't really get into it as much. But you know, baby steps, I suppose. Mm-hmm. Although, ironically. Uh, the next song we're going to talk about, Rock Your Baby by George McRae, is actually one that we talked about on our very first episode. <laughs> um, over two years, no, over three years ago now. Oh God, me. I'm old. Yeah. And I believe the reason I talked about, I brought it up in that episode, is it was that episode was more about just like, what, what did we do over the summer? Some stuff we learned, concerts we saw. Mm-hmm. And this was a song that I first discovered during that summer. So Nice. So um, I so the order that we wrote these songs in, um, kind of chronological in a sense. Um, so obviously the one we just talked about was from 1972, the very first one from this label. Um, Rock Your Baby came out in 1974, so still pretty early in the records, um, in TK Records' career, but it's not you know not the first song that came out, um, but is by far one of the more famous ones that came out of that. Um, in itself, Rock Your Baby is actually considered the second ever hit of the disco era um following only rock the boat by the hughes corporation i don't know if we ever talked about that song but i know we both know it yeah I, we did we i don't remember which is sad because i actually have that on vinyl it's one of my few disco albums oh nice something about disco and rocking things apparently they they got confused <laughs> it's like we, yeah, that's true. we want our genre to be rock but we're just gonna say the word rock a lot and that's when the rock came in and rocked everyone's boat. You know, in the movie, the San Andreas, he's actually in a boat. So technically, it is rock the boat. Because it's the rock <laughs> in a boat. Good job, Kyle. <laughs> Are you just going to be making rock puns the entire time? Hell yes. So, yeah, like I said, uh, Rock the Boat by the Hughes Corporation was apparently considered the first first hit of the disco era. Which I actually had to go back and listen to it because I, I didn't really remember it being too disco-y. But actually, I, I, I could see that. Yeah. Um, I was, I, and then I looked up, you know, okay, so it's, it was, Rock Your Baby was the second one behind this. When did they come out in relation to each other? They actually both came out in May of 1974. Hmm. Um, I couldn't get actual dates. Obviously, Rock the Boat must have come out only within a couple of weeks before Rock Your Baby. So true that this was almost the very first disco hit. Anyway, um, I should say that this is one of the earliest his, hits co-written by Harry Wayne Casey and Richard Finch. And you probably don't recognize those names, but they were actually founding members of KC and the Sunshine Band, and they were overall pioneers in the disco sound. Um, and you may, you'll probably hear those sound, those those uh, those names coming up a couple times in this episode, um, particularly Harry Wayne Casey, because he was basically in this record label, you know, from day one more or less, and he became, you know, one of like the biggest. I mean, one of the biggest names in disco in itself, but also. In terms of just this record label, he was yeah, he had a really big hand in like developing that sound and everything, mm. and producing other artists. 
Um, let's see. So I actually have a quote um, for Richard Finch, one of the uh, one of the uh, co-writers of the song. He says, and this, I found this kind of interesting. He says, quote, and this is kind of excerpted. I cut out pizzas here and there, but you'll get the idea. He said, Harry and I were paying attention to the chart actions at clubs because club records were doing better than just regular R&B records. Uh, back then, you could sneak into a club and they didn't check your ID. So Harry and I would once in a while go and sneak into the local clubs. We'd pay attention to what brought people to the dance floor and what made them sit down. So we started gearing ourselves to writing more in that direction. Rock Your Baby was inspired by the gathering of all that information. So I found I found that kind of interesting that they actually kind of went into the place where disco music, you know, grew, which was dance clubs. And they studied, okay, this type of music. They did research. Exactly. They did research. Probably more research than we do for this show. Um, they're, di- they're disco scientists. Exactly. So I found that kind of interesting that instead of just like studying, you know, charts or record sales or something, they actually went down into the, the clubs and see what people like to dance to. It's funny because now I'm just imagining like, like old 70s film of like people in nightclubs that's like, uh, ha- is like a voiceover from like, you know, some British guy. Like, and we see here the male venturing over to the dance floor watering hole to entice some females with large posteriors <laughs> exactly so <laughs> um another interesting quote here that i'll read it's a bit shorter um, before we play a clip of this song um henry stone as we said the, the founder of the the label he said quote i suggested to harry that gwen mccray george mccray's wife might be a good contender to cut the track but just then George walked in and I told Harry to let George have a go first. Um, and we'll talk about Gwen McRae actually after we talk about George. Um, but I found it interesting that a lot, it seemed like a lot, there were a lot of like little anecdotes of this record label from the early days where stuff kind of just happened by accident. And in this case, this became George McRae's biggest hit by far, the second hit of the disco era, mm-hmm. all because he just happened to walk into the room at that particular time. Nice. So, I can just imagine him pushing his wife out of the way and being like, "Me first <laughs> <laughs> I like that version better. <laughs> So that was a little clip of Rock Your Baby by George McRae. Great song. I love it. Yeah. Um, definitely um, getting into the more disco sound. I think that you know people could ease, more easily recognize rather than the, the previous song we talked about. Mm-hmm. Obviously, it wasn't very disco-y. Mm-hmm. Um, so one thing I want, there was, a, gosh, there's a lot of things I could have talked about for some of this, some of these songs. Um, I tried to cut it back, but it's still kind of long. Anyway, one thing I did want to touch on in this song before we move on because it's relevant to our last week's episode um, about artists who went bankrupt because of either decisions they made Mm -hmm. or because of, you know, just bad circumstances. Um, So Richard Finch, who I already mentioned as one of the co-writers of the song, um, because this was their first like big hit that they wrote, um, he, he, um, the very first check he got for this song was $227,000. Mm-hmm. Which is basically a quarter of a million dollars at age twenty. That's more than I make in forever. 
Yeah. And this was in 1970s dollars, so. That's probably like half a million dollars now. Yeah. So imagining getting a check for half a million dollars at the age of 20. So, yeah. Um, um, so basically, the first thing he did, apparently, was buy his mom a Jaguar. Um, even though, at the time, the U.S. was in the thick of the 70s oil crisis. Nice. Um, so not the best idea to go buy a Jaguar. And also, his mom didn't even have a driver's license. <laughs> and I believe it's said that she didn't get another driver's license until, like, seven years later. So she never drove it, or? Basically. Um, but because of this financial, this lack of financial foresight... Um, that Finch had um, it really bit him in the ass later down the line um, because in in the early 80s they had to re-sign um, some contracts to the rights of the songs um, from Casey and the Sunshine Band who you know in the late 70s you know exploded in popularity mm-hmm. um, and because of you know these financial choices that he made he basically had to give up his royalty rights for the songs that he wrote and performed which in terms of potential revenue in the years following, he lost millions and millions of dollars. Ooh. Do, they really need to learn, do not give up your royalties. That is like the last thing you ever want to give up. That's basically like it, your future yeah. insurance. So yeah, um, I thought that was kind of interesting that kind of tied into what we were talking about last week. That is. Um, it would have been something good to mention, but yeah, I don't know. Anyway. Yeah. I guess moving on from George McRae to his wife, Gwen McRae, um, I wanted to talk about her song, Rockin' Chair, because we haven't talked about enough rockin'. Now, so now, now you need to make a pun with the rock sitting in a chair. The rock's rockin' in a chair. See, the rock, in, the rock doesn't rock the chair, the chair rocks the rock. I don't know. Um, is that, is, was that the, the theme of the movie? The, the chair well, see, started rocking and the, then it rocked the, the entire world. I was going to say the rock realized that the best place to be in an earthquake is in a rocking chair. So he hid his family inside of a rocking chair. Well, it's like those buildings that can withstand earthquakes, right? Because they can wobble and stuff. It's the same exactly. thing in a rocking chair. Exactly. The rock just sat in a rocking chair during the earthquake and said, yep, that's an earthquake. That sounds like a very serious dilemma. It is. Uh, it's funny, though, too, as we move down the, the list of of songs that have the word rocking in it it's like the 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 item that's being rocked becomes more and more easy to rock like it's really hard to rock a boat and then you know rocking a baby requires like your whole upper body motion but then rocking in a rocking chair you just have to sway back and forth (laughs) so that's a um that's an observation i was not expecting from this yeah so basically like they just, you know, like the last song of the disco era is just going to be like, like rocking on the toilet or something like the easiest form of rocking you can do. And it's a well-known fact that rocking on the toilet is the most easy kind yeah. of rocking. Yeah. Anyway, why don't you tell us about um, Rock and Share? Okay. <laughs> so Gwen McRae um, had been performing in local clubs as a teenager and singing with local groups like the Lafayettes and the independence um and in 1963 she met a young sailor named george mccray who she married within a week that sounds like a disney movie uh yeah i I felt that was kind of insane yeah that you marry someone within a week of meeting them that's just i don't even especially in the 60s when divorce was way more not cool (laughs) hmm 
but I mean, it's it's funny because then these songs that they were talking about of them mm-hmm. are more than a decade later, and they were still married at that time. So apparently, it worked out at yeah. least for at least for a decade, if not more. I assume you they kind of just stayed married forever. I was gonna say you should look up if they ever divorced. Okay, I'll actually look that up while you talk. Okay, um, so after marrying this guy within a week uh, starting that same year in 63 she started a recording duo with her new husband George Um, and the couple was actually discovered by Betty Wright not Betty White who (laughs) Betty Wright we have actually talked about on the show yeah her song uh, Clean Up Woman I think we've talked about before yeah Um, so Betty Wright she actually helped them get signed to TK Records specifically the subsidiary Alston Records says that actually that Gwen actually record, uh, scored her her solo contract even before her husband George did. So he's mm-hmm. a, he's a sucker. Um, <laughs> Gwen started off with some success at TK with her R and B covers of Bobby Bland songs, who I know we've talked about. Mm-hmm. But yeah. after George shot to stardom with his song "Rock Your Baby," Gwen's like, "Hey, I like rocking too. I'm gonna write my own song." But I don't have a baby to rock, so I'm just going to sit in this chair and think about it. And then she's like, wait a second. <laughs> I, that's, that second, that, that's my, I think that's my favorite way that an artist ever, I'm ever came up with a song. song. Except for the one that was not made up by us, where the guy came up with it while sitting on the toilet. Was he rocking Which, on the toilet, was, though? But we still can't. We still can't remember who that was, right? Oh, damn! Because no. we tried to figure it out. Yeah, I and know I we- and I I mistakenly thought it was when a man loves a woman. But then we looked it up, and that wasn't true. So I don't. I don't. I honestly don't remember who it was. Oh, I don't know. We'll have to do some later research on that because I I thought we talked about that, but didn't we, we did? But we ended up getting it wrong. No, we didn't get it wrong, but I just don't remember who it was. And oh. I don't want to listen through 130 episodes trying to figure out who, <laughs> who it was. Touche. Uh, yeah, definitely definitely touche to that. Um, but you listeners should. <laughs> I was going to say, we don't want to listen to, we don't want to listen to our stuff, but you should. <laughs> While rocking on the toilet. Um, yeah, I'll do, some, I'll do some Googling on that later on, and okay. we'll let you listeners know if we come up with it. Uh <laughs> But um, so yeah, Gwen's just sitting uh, in a rocking chair, writing a song about rocking in a rocking chair, um, and that song actually shot to become the number one R&B hit and a top ten on the pop chart. So, not to be confused with pop tarts. Yeah. So basically, We're professional. <laughs> um. So yeah, basically, Gwen McRae followed her husband's success by rocking. That's true. So, Rock Your Baby, is that like they had a baby together and they were rocking it? Or like Rock Your Baby is in like your girlfriend or significant other? It's your girlfriend or significant other. Or oh. I guess it could be boyfriend. Well, apparently George knows nothing about having a girlfriend because he married her within a week. So, Well, you could... His baby was his wife. Yeah, true. Anyway, why don't we listen to a, a clip of Rock and Chair? Okay. Baby, ooh, let me be your rocking chair. 
We hope you rocked in your rocking chair to that last song. My chair doesn't rock. I'm sad. It just it just swivels. A couple of things I want to mention really quick. One, she actually does say the phrase rock your baby in that song at some what? point. Rock your baby um, in a rocking chair. Yeah. Two, um, like we said, listeners, they did actually have some duo um, kind of duet type of um, music releases earlier in their careers. Mm-hmm. So if you really want to, you can go look up stuff that they did together rather than both coming out with popular disco songs. Uh, the third thing is that I was looking up whether they divorced. I didn't see any evidence either way, huh. but I feel like if they did, it would have come up somewhere. Are they dead? I guess that's the most important question for us. I don't know. We always say that people are dead and then they're not, or the other way around. Exactly. Um, I believe they're still alive. Gwen is, and George... I believe still is as well. Oh, I was hoping that like he died in her arms in a rocking chair. <laughs> why would Why would you hope that? I don't. Okay, Tushy, I don't hope for anyone's death, but you know, says he's seventy. Anyway, it says he's seventy-one. So, you know, ap, uh, more than likely, he's sitting on a porch with her in a rocking chair. I like to think that. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, they're both still alive, and they're both apparently still musically active. I can dig it. To some extent. That's kind of cool. And assuming they're still together, I mean, it's kind of amazing that they got married in a week and then have been together for 40-something years. Maybe it was arranged. Uh, Maybe. (laughs) It was just arranged for her to meet him. It's like, oh, yeah, by the way, get married. But, uh... Anyway. Anyways. Um, Speaking of old people, uh... What do we got up next, Mr. Peter? Um, well, I felt it was appropriate for us to talk about Betty Wright. Um, we did just mention her as kind of the person who discovered uh, George and Gwen. Um, but also, obviously, Betty Wright was a pretty popular singer in herself. Um, and so I'm actually stepping, taking one step back, um, chronologically anyway. Uh, Rock and Chair was from 75 um, the song I chose for Betty Wright, Shura Shura, was from 1974. And um, and I'll get into the reasons why I chose this song in a minute. But first, uh, Betty Wright, if you don't know, you probably don't. Um, she was an R&B singer-songwriter who was starting... She, she began her career like in the late 50s, actually. So wow. quite a long time ago. Um, but she really started to become popular in the 70s um, with her songs such as Clean Up Woman and Tonight is the Night, etc. Um, so she was really kind of pioneering in the whole singer-songwriter-entrepreneur game, especially as a black female. And she's actually, still today, is only one of the few black female musicians who has ever produced a gold record on her own Vanity label in her wow. career. So that's pretty impressive. That's impressive. Good for her. Now, Vanity label being like one that you start yourself to perform your own music? Yeah. Gotcha. And to make, make more money for yourself, too. Which we talked about last week was can potentially have really terrible uh, side financial, financial side effects. But, you know, if you play your cards right, then you can make lots of money that way. True. Um, oh, okay, so something I want to kind of touch on is we've talked about some of the sub-labels of TK Records already. Mm-hmm. Um, I do kind of want to talk about something really quick in, in terms of Betty Wright. Um, so... I wasn't quite sure when 
her songs like Clean Up a Woman, you know, because that's probably her most famous song. I was trying to think, okay, was did she release that on TK Records or on something else? Because it was a number of years before, mm-hmm. um, before this. And so in my research, I kind of found that it was kind of confusing, but I think I kind of figured it out. Um, basically, artists like Betty Wright and several artists from TK, um, including like Jimmy Bohorn, who we'll be talking about next, um, were originally on Alston Records, which I think you may have actually mentioned with Gwen. Uh-huh. Yeah. Um, which was actually another separate label co-founded by Henry Stone and Steve Alimo, um, basically the same team who created TK Records, and that was in that back in 1964. So it was probably about a decade before TK started. Hmm. So they they recorded the song under Alston Records, but the distribution rights for actually like you know putting it out on media and so people can buy the song um, were owned by Atco Records, which itself was a subsidiary of Atlantic Records. Jesus. We need to create like a web of like how all these different record companies are connected. That'd be kind of I know we need some kind of graphic for this stuff. Anyway, so the distribution rights were later absorbed by TK Records in 1974, a year after it started. Thus, Alston Records became a subsidiary of TK, and the whole back catalog of Alston Records, including Betty Wright songs, can I guess we can consider them part of TK's extended catalog. Mm-hmm inform like from a distribution standpoint but so songs like that were actually weren't recorded when she was part of tk mm. technically um the song i chose shura shura actually was the first single that she released under tk proper which is why i chose this mm. versus something else so i don't know if any of that made sense listeners but that was that that was me actually doing research that's which is not research. something very often here yeah, that's impressive. So, like I said, this is the first single she released under TK Records. Um, it's actually from um, the first album she recorded and released under this record label. Um, the album was called Danger High Voltage from 1974. So, yeah. I'm going to take a quick break from talking, and you listeners can do that thing you do best, which is listen to a clip. Okay. So one more thing about Betty Wright before we move on. Um, she's actually still musically active today. Nice. Which is pretty awesome. Um, she has two albums that came out pretty recently. Her most recent one came out last year in 2015. Or no, excuse me, 2014. I'm already thinking about 2016. <laughs> We're getting pretty close. <laughs> um, and that album was called Living Love Lies. Also in 2011 was an album called Betty Wright the Movie. Um, I don't know why she called it that, but she performed <laughs> that with The Roots. That's pretty funny. Remember remember in like the early 2000s when like every time there was a movie based on like a kid's show, it was always the, the name of the show, the movie. Like Rugrats, yeah. the movie. SpongeBob, the movie. That's true. Pokemon, the movie. It's like they well, couldn't say like the Pokemon movie or Pokemon, you know, subtitle. It was always just like, hey, kids, this is that show you like the movie <laughs> yeah um i've heard bits and pieces of betty wright the movie but i don't know why they called it that so i should probably look it up and see i don't know if there might have been like a short 
film that was connected to it. In the movie, possibly was, was Betty Wright played by Betty White, <laughs> and it was called Betty Wright the movie. The movie. <laughs> also, I don't think Betty White should play Betty Wright because that would require blackface, which maybe, would be terrible. Maybe, maybe Betty Wright the movie is just the soundtrack to the movie that never came out. Do you ever think about that? I did not think about that. Mind blown. It's it's like Betty Wright, the soundtrack to the movie, the movie. <laughs> and then they make it they make a documentary about the movie that didn't exist. That didn't ever happen, yeah. And then the soundtrack to that is Betty Wright, the movie, the movie, the movie. <laughs> the official soundtrack of the official movie of the movie. <laughs> oh gosh. We're we really think we're stupid. so funny, listeners. I was going to say, we're really stupid. Well, that goes without saying. Yeah. Um, Do you want to talk a little bit about Jimmy Bohorn, Kyle? I would like to talk about Jimmy Crack Corn. Uh, yeah, sure. So <laughs> That's right. You did tell me that you thought Jimmy Bohorn sounded like Jimmy Crack Corn. I'm pretty sure he's like a distant cousin, at least. So Jimmy Bohorn um, produced or released the song, I should say, Let Me Be Your Lover in 1975. Um Mr. Bohorn was an R&B slash disco singer who grew up in West Palm Beach, Florida, so it was only natural that the bulk of his music career uh, would reside at TK Records and its subsidiaries. Some of his songs were released under the Alston label, as mentioned previously, uh, but the majority of his hits were actually under Sunshine Sound, another TK label featuring artists produced by uh, John Wayne Gacy. I mean, Harry Wayne Gacy. <laughs> So yeah, there's that name again. Um, the founding guy of uh, Casey and the Sunshine Band. Not John Wayne Gacy. That too. <laughs> now, I, now I'm just imagining John Wayne Gacy with like a disco like group. But like it it's happened. but like it's him in the clown suit on stage doing disco music. You imagine it's, funny things, Kyle. It's like Gacy in the murder band. <laughs> Is there anything else you wanted to say? Yeah, a little bit. So, um, Mr. Bohorn's disco sound actually shows a heavy influence from uh, Mr. Casey's writing and producing direction. The tempo, vocal style, and prominent use of horns are all actually uh, pretty much identical to those used by Casey and the Sunshine Band. So, Jimmy Bohorn is like Casey Light. Pretty much, yeah. I mean, I, I feel that like from a musical standpoint, his stuff sounds like very, very similar to Casey and the Sunshine Band. So, I mean, it's it makes sense that it was Perry Wayne Casey was yeah. basically wrote and produced this stuff because it's exactly the same. Exactly. Um, yeah, no, it's it. Uh, I'm listening to this clip earlier. It it is very Casey like mm-hmm. to the point that like you could get them confused if it wasn't for the vocals. Mm-hmm. And even the vocals aren't super far different. Let me. It's a black guy versus a white guy. Casey Casey sounds pretty black when he wants to. Come on. Do you think Casey was, like, raising Jimmy Bo to be his, like, protege so that, like, when Casey died, it could be, like, JB in the Sunshine Band? Um, maybe. That That's that, definitely a theory. It's like his ward. <laughs> it's like Batman and Robin, but it's Casey and Jimmy Bo. <laughs> oh, gosh. Now I'm imagining them dressed as Batman and Robin, but the 60s version. Nice. And doing, like, the disco moves of the 60s, or the... Whatever that weird dance is where you, like, make peace signs over your eyes. Yeah. Um, should we play a little clip of Jimmy Crack Bowhorn? 
let's do that and then we can erase that image from our heads okay Jimmy Bohorn and I don't care. Jimmy Bohorn and I don't care. We hope you listeners did care about Jimmy Bohorn. You should care because his music actually received a lot of attention in dance clubs. Sadly, he never had a number one song, which is probably why his father Casey disowned him and saw him as a fit. No, I'm kidding. Uh, <laughs> which is probably why most people have never heard of him. You know why? Is because he always lived in the shadow of Jimmy Crackhorn. That could very well be that. <laughs> Uh, the closest he actually ever got was a uh, number eight single, Dance Across the Floor. But he was also known for such songs as Spank <laughs> and You Got Me Hot. Yeah, something I want to mention is that there's like a ton of people that we could have talked about with this label, the Takeo Records. But, you know, in the span of one episode, we can only talk about a few. True. Um, I, I felt it was worth talking about Jimmy Bohorn just because I personally really love his sound. And like, I don't think there's any song by him that I don't really like. Mm-hmm. You know, someone else picking the list of artists might have not included him, but I, you know, I really like him, so I, I threw him in there. I can take it. Jimmy Bohorn really rings my bell. Does he? He does. Well, why don't we talk about ring my bell? Damn it, Peter. <laughs> I, I need a word. I freaking set that up for you so hard, and you just walked right past it. I know. Peter. I'm uh, kind of off my game tonight. Sorry, listeners. It's okay. I am too. Mm. Uh, okay. It's, sorry? I was just going to say, it's because of watching San Andreas. I have post-traumatic stress syndrome. Well, you're also stressed out because we haven't had like a song with the word rock in it for a while. I know. I'm kind of freaking out. I don't ha- I don't have any more puns. I need. I have a whole bag of puns here. Well, why don't we pretend uh, this is called Rock My Bill? <laughs> Okay. You know, the rock doesn't ring your bell. The rock rings. Damn it. Now, see, now I lost. It doesn't work, Peter. It just doesn't work. Why don't you think of something while I'm talking about Okay. X? Okay. <laughs> while, while I'm talking about things that matter. <laughs> well, none of it matters. <laughs> um. So anyway, Ring My Bell by Nita Ward. It's actually one we did talk about a long time ago. Um. But here it's relevant again, because this is easily one of the biggest disco songs that came out of tk records and you know it's in itself it's actually i would say it stands up pretty well as a as a well-known disco song this is actually the only hit song that anita ward ever recorded and the funny thing about that is that it wasn't actually even supposed to be recorded by her originally her producer frederick knight actually wrote it for um an 11 year old stacy Lattisaw, but she ended up signing with a different label so he's like hey anita ward you should sing this instead um, she actually really did not want to record this song. Um, and I don't really know why, but she she really didn't want to record it, apparently. But Frederick Knight, as her producer, basically said, you have to record it because they needed another dance number on the album that they were producing for her. Mm-hmm. I also I also read somewhere else that they actually ended up revising some of the lyrics to be a little bit more adult. Um, because you know, I was when I, I was gonna say about that actually, because I was thinking of the lyrics. I'm like, aren't those lyrics a little suggestive for an 11 year old to sing? Yeah, but they I, actually they actually did um, change the lyrics a bit so that it wasn't 
you know, it couldn't be necessarily sung by an 11 year old. Yeah. Um, and I'm, I, I don't know whether that helped kind of Anita Ward feel better about singing it or not, but I kind of assumed that it helped Probably. even though she didn't really have a choice. Anyway, so they, <laughs> so she performed the song and, and ironically, I mean, she kind of became a one hit wonder of the song. I don't really know anything else that she's done. Mm-hmm. Um, and this song sold over a million copies. And, you know, I think it was really popular in itself, like I said, but it's funny that she really didn't want to perform it because if she had gotten her way, she would never, we probably would never have heard of her. Yeah, that's very true. That's funny. It's and, like the, the thing you don't want to do ends up being the thing that makes you famous. Yeah. You know, and, and we've talked about one hit wonders a number of times on this show. And it's funny how sometimes those singers actually kind of get reluctant because they can't make another hit and that they're only known for one thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, I can kind of see that being annoying how you can make a big once and then never really, um, you know, duplicate that, that success. success. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, so I don't, I don't really know how she felt about it afterward or if she felt that way, but it, it's kind of funny that like, I don't want to record the song. It's like, okay, well you have to, Oh, it became really big. Oh wait, it's the only song that you'll ever do that was popular. <laughs> so that kind of sucks for her. Yeah. I could have sworn that she had done more stuff. but She had know. a good singing voice, and she could hit some pretty high notes, so it's it's sad that mm-hmm. she didn't get anything else super yeah. famous. It's a pretty catchy song, too. Yeah. Um, speaking of catchy, um, the last one we have on our list was well, kind of... What? You're, there's you're, more shit? No, there's more you're shit. jumping the gun, Kyle. I do that a lot. Well, the biggest thing of which was we didn't listen to a clip of Ring My Bell. So our listeners don't know what we're talking about. This is true. Um, why don't you... Damn it! Let's just... Okay, everybody stop talking. We're going to listen. listeners should know that anytime you can ring our bell on facebook or soundcloud or or twitter yeah um so again that was ring my bell by anita ward basically the only song that she's known for um really quick note before you can move on to our last thing kyle sorry sorry um is um frederick knight the guy who i mentioned who was um her producer actually was an r&b singer himself um and was not in is known for a few different songs. One of being, one of them being, "I've been lonely for so long." Um, so, and that wasn't disco. That was more of like kind of like a soul song. But uh, mm-hmm. he's, he, I listened to it and he sounds pretty good too. Nice. So, I, can I guess it. makes sense that one singer eventually becomes the producer of someone else. Yeah, very true. And I guess be, be which is the same case for Harry Wayne Casey and this, the band that I guess it's a good lead into the band that we'll be talking about now. Yeah, tie in. Um, yeah, I guess it was kind of inevitable that we were going to talk about this band because they're like the heart and soul of TK, mm-hmm. uh, is Casey and the Sunshine Band, and specifically their song, Sound Your Funky, uh, Jimmy Crack Horn, no, Sound, <laughs> Sound, Sound Your Funky Horn, uh, mm. which came out in 1973, so early, one of the earlier hits for TK. Um, yeah, I actually, um, really quick, sorry to interrupt. Yeah, yeah. They produced a 
crap ton of really popular songs and which were all under TK records and until it, it went bankrupt in 81. But nice. um, I chose this one because it was the very first hit that they made. So just to, so generally we went kind of chronological, but then at the end, not really as much. Sorry, but you can continue. No, no, it's all good. So yeah, as I was saying, TK or Casey was easily one of the biggest names to come out of TK Records. And this was largely due to the pioneering efforts by Harry Wayne Casey, who formed the band in 1973 and served as a musician, writer, and producer for several other artists on the label. So he's like, he's like the Barry Gordy of TK, except Barry Gordy wasn't actually in the band himself. Um, it's actually, that's and, a good and, and Casey didn't own the record label. Touche. That's a good question, and that might be a future funk episode, is mm. artists that, on top of having their own bands, were influential in, uh, you know, writing and producing for other people. Yeah. I mean, that'd be pretty, that'd be an interesting topic. We might have to talk about that later on. Yeah. Um, so, the band was known for dozens of disco hits, including That's the Way, Uh-huh, Uh-huh, I Like It, Shake, 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 Shake Your Booty. Uh, I'm your boogeyman. That's what I am. And keep it coming, love. Get down tonight. Uh huh. Uh huh. Boogie shoes. Please don't. That's a lot of things. Too many words, Peter. Um, please don't go. And give it up. I know so, yeah. five of those songs. I mean, out of that big list that Kyle just said, I mean, that's probably still only like two thirds of like their most popular songs. Yeah. I have two Casey records. I don't know where they are right now, but yeah. Mm. I think Casey was actually one of the first records I got, remember? <laughs> okay, this is a funny aside, just to prove the enduring, lasting power of Casey and the Sunshine Band. So, one of my friends got me a Casey and the Sunshine Band record. Um, I think it was the one with Shaky Booty, but I don't remember. So, this was before I ever really started collecting records. I had this idea, I think I actually got it from you, Peter, to make a clock out of the record, because... I saw this thing uh, on like, on like Pinterest or something where you just take like a clock motor and the, the hands, I guess, you put it through the hole and you create like a record clock because the record mm-hmm. is round. And I remember I put it in this nice record frame, put it up on the wall, it looked real nice. And then I used like one of those like shitty like command hooks that obviously it didn't hold enough weight or I got one that didn't hold enough weight. So hours later, the, Record in the frame comes crashing down. Frame completely shatters. But the record, amazingly, is intact. And so I'm like, well, this sucks. So I, you know, disassemble it. I put it back in the sleeve and I put it away. You know, months and months later, I start collecting records and I pull this out. Cause I'm like, oh yeah, I forgot I had this. I play it. Plays completely fine. Didn't even scratch or anything. <laughs> nice. you know, dis- despite shattering inside of a glass case. So Casey is strong. <laughs> it was held together by his magic by his disco love yes that's funny um so yeah this stupid aside um so yeah um this particular song of his sound your funky horn was actually one of the first songs that they released and it was second only to blow your whistle in 1973 they really love suggestive things don't they yeah ring my bell blow your whistle Ring my whistle, blow my bell. Suck that corn cob. I don't know. <laughs> um, so, and this was actually the first song to kind of feature an upbeat disco dance style that they were known for. Yeah, um, I actually misspoke earlier when I said this was the first 
the song they came out with um blair whistle was earlier in the same year in 73 but i listened to that and it was i guess it was kind of more funk or soul maybe um which kind of makes a little bit more sense for the time frame mm-hmm. um but then so it doesn't really sound like anything else that they've done but then they listen to sound your funky horn which is a song i already knew but um i, I actually wrote this down but i'll just say it now it's like it it amazed me how close it felt to their sound which they were known for maybe five years later and which was a lot more well aligned with like the disco sound that came around that same time later in the decade but this is 73 this is many years before that and i was kind of just impressed by how how early that he that harry wayne casey kind of and, and on the other people as well obviously kind of came up with this sound and kind of innovated what would become really popular you know five to seven years later true I thought that was kind of impressive and it kind of shows how innovative he was when he was developing it that early on you know yeah because exactly you know people pinpoint disco as like a late 70s thing and then they realize that this sound was coming out in early 70s five years prior mm-hmm. is kind of weird to think about this is back when nixon was still president everyone knows that the disco president was jimmy carter that's true i guess i guess Never thought of it that way i don't know he was the president in the late 70s so it was his peanut farming and stuff that created the disco power. That paved the way. Yeah, peanuts. <laughs> Why don't you think about that for a minute, Kyle, while the listeners listen to the sound your funky horn. Okay. Thus concludes um, the list that we came up with for this episode. Oh, fun tie-in. Okay. To my because so the record label is from Miami, correct? Yeah. The Rock um, played for the oh, Miami Hurricanes football team in college because he went to the University of Miami. And a hurricane is similar to all the other stuff that happened in that movie. <laughs> sort of, but not really. Um, <laughs> It was a disaster. It was the movie was a disaster. Um, so yeah, it, it all comes together in the end. That's true. Another tie-in, actually, I forgot about this. Um, how I said earlier in the episode, how uh, "Rock Your Baby" by George McRae was a song I mentioned in our first episode. Yep. Another thing we mentioned in our first episode What's the was the rock, not the rock. It was when I went to that Casey and the Sunshine Band concert. In that summer, oh, yeah. and we talked about that in that episode too. So that's two tie-ins. Because you saw the them in San beginning. Diego, right? You saw them yeah, at the San yeah. Diego Fair. And they were amazing. So that's awesome. Um, seems like we've had been having more tie-ins to our early episodes lately. Yeah, it it all comes full circle. The circle of funk. The circle of funk. <laughs> oh God. Well, if you made it this far, listeners, then we salute you, because we barely did. For those about to rock your boat, we salute you. Mm-hmm. And if you hate us, tell us on Facebook. <laughs> Facebook. <laughs> we got we, we we love drinking that haterade. <laughs> Fun fact: uh, Gatorade was also developed uh, in Florida by the Rock. <laughs> I just imagine, like, they just harness the rock sweat, and, like, that's what makes Gatorade. 
Oh, Jesus. That's funny. And it was making children cry when they drank it, so they added color to it to make it more fun. <laughs> they don't even flavor it, it's just the rock sweat. It's just like yellowish clear. Oh, Jesus. This is a really bad time for me to tell people where to find us on social media. <laughs> I don't even know if I want to say it now. Oh, jeez. Okay. Well, now you have a reason to hate us, and you can tell us on Facebook at facebook.com slash getyourfunk. You can also um, subscribe to us on... And I, I, uh, okay. I mixed a bunch of things up there. Subscribe to us on iTunes if you search for Funk Radio in the podcast section. You can follow us, not subscribe, on SoundCloud. Um, we have all of our episodes up there. We also have them all up on overmental.com, which is our host slash home base on the internet. Um, there's other cool things to check out there as well. Like uh, if you really like Star Wars and want to read about shit that has to do with Star Wars, <laughs> then go read it there. If you like other cool podcasts, they are there as well. <laughs> you, Peter, you need to you need to start reviewing movies again and just be like, if you want to read about Star Wars shit, read my article. Well, I didn't write them. I know, I know. I'm just saying. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Oh boy, um, that's it. Technically, we're in Twitter, but we don't look at it, so don't bother. Yeah, don't tweet us. We won't tweet. Machete, don't tweet. <laughs> Does the Rock tweet? No, well, he uses he he moves giant rocks on the beaches to make messages. <laughs> wait, wait. Before we before we leave, um, so if listeners go to twitter.com slash the rock, and I'm not kidding, um, you listeners can follow Dwayne Johnson, the rock. It's not like the real the real rock or something. The, the real the rock. Yeah, the real the rock. Because <laughs> it seems like you know there's always like fake yeah. spinoff. Twitters, and they always have to be like the real President Obama. His description under his name mm-hmm. on his Twitter page says "man," just "man" with period. Yes. <laughs> well, the Rock is man, so he's also Rock. Yes, he's part Rock, part man. He's like go- he's like the Jewish Golem. Actually, I think <laughs> that was made of clay or whatever. I think you're thinking of a dreidel. No, in the Jewish folklore, there was a there was a monster called the Golem that was made of clay. Well, he was made of clay. I didn't know that. I thought it was clay. I don't know. God, why do you make me Google stuff, Peter? Okay, oh. we're not gonna stay here and wait for Kyle to do that, listeners. You can tell <laughs> us on Facebook if you know about more more about Jewish folklore. Bye. <laughs> Bye. <laughs> Fucking.